Let us pray. So, Father, let your light shine through us, that the world may come to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here. I'm going to get this adjusted just a little bit better. Taking it off after you have it set to get your mask on and off. So, um, yes, good morning. I'd invite you to open your Bibles or devices, if you would, to our reading from John's Gospel. Um, John chapter 1, the prologue, what is known as the prologue to John's Gospel, is actually my very favorite passage in all of Scripture. And um, it is certainly a sermon series of many weeks in itself. But today I want to focus on the ministry of John the Baptist that we read of here in John chapter 1 in our time together. Because there's so much that we can learn from John's example. Now, now hear me, to, to, to be like John, to follow John's example doesn't, need, doesn't mean that we need to necessarily wear camel hair and live exclusively on a diet of locust and wild honey. I hope that's a relief to some of you because um, I'm not really looking for that. Um, although, with what I hear with the cicadas coming, we could probably come pretty close to that in the next month or two. But as we look at John's example, we will see that there is so much that we can learn and much with which God challenges us through John's example. I'm going to give credit this morning to both Craig Keener and Leon Morris for their commentaries on this text that I'm relying on very much for some of the material that I'm using. I think to start with, we need to remind ourselves a little bit of the background with John the Baptist, sort of a quick refresher. Most of what we know about John's life and ministry is found, his early life especially, is from Luke's gospel, especially Luke chapter 1. We know that John was related to Jesus through his mother Elizabeth. We see that in Luke 1.36. We know that John's conception was a miracle. His mother was barren and both Elizabeth and Zechariah, his father, were well along in years, as Luke chapter 1 verse 7 tells us. We know that, he would be, that he, his being born was an answer to his parents' prayers and that it was announced to his father by an angel, Luke 1.11. The angel also described to Zechariah, his father, the kind of ministry that John would have and he declared that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. John stood figuratively, if you will, with one foot in the world of the Old Testament and one foot in the world of of the New Testament. He was the last in the line of great Old Testament prophets, and he was a bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. All of these facts that we read of John, both in his birth narrative and this standing kind of straddling the Old and the New Covenants, um, points to the fact that John would have an incredibly profound, significant, and powerful ministry. I want to focus this morning on one specific, even primary way that John lived out the ministry to which he was called to in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at the record of John's life, his life and his ministry, we see this, that John the Baptist demonstrates what it truly means to bear witness to who Jesus is. 
Again, even before he was born, in Luke 146, we read that at the voice of Mary, the mother of our Lord, John leaped for joy in his mother's womb. Our gospel reading today, as it speaks of John the Baptist, emphasizes the power of John's witness and testimony. Not only in the words of John the Baptist, which are recorded here in John 1, but also through what St. John's gospel here tells us about John the Baptist's ministry. Look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1 with me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all who believe through him, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In today's gospel reading, I believe we see three key ways in which John the Baptist demonstrates what it truly means to bear witness to who Jesus is. And these three things are incredibly practical for us today, right here, right now, just as they were in the first century, especially as we continue to seek God's face about reaching our neighbors, reaching Dale City and being witnesses to who Christ is to those who need to hear the good news of the gospel. The first thing we see is this. John demonstrates what it truly means to bear witness to Jesus by consistently calling his hearers to believe. That's what we just read in scripture. And it says that John would do. That he came as a witness. He came to, to testify. To, to bear witness. He came as a witness to the light. Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to be a witness? I think of the example of being subpoenaed for a trial. Um, been there, done that, don't have any interest in doing it again. Um, anyone else ever had that experience, had witness in, bear witness in a trial? Yes. But a witness is there not just to convey information. The witness, he or she is expected to state the facts. And if the witness is truthful, he, he or she is committed, no longer neutral, but has taken a stand for what is true. A witness is a, gives valid testimony to the truth. John the Baptist testified to the truth. John testified as a witness to the light. And his witness was not an end somehow in itself. The purpose of his witness was that all might believe through him. Again, John chapter 1 verse 7. Yes, John baptized. And in Luke 3, John gives profound teaching on the ethics of God's kingdom as he confronts the religious leaders and their corruption. And these things are not insignificant, hear me. But they pale. They take a back seat to the foremost purpose of John's calling, of bearing witness and calling people to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Leon Mars puts it this way in his commentary, John's witness is what matters. It was to be a witness that John came and nothing else that he did can be compared in importance to this. In the end, brothers and sisters, that's what will really matter about our lives as well. That we have been faithful witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus. 
and that our highest purpose in life is that others, not just a few, but many may truly come to believe because we are faithful, spirit-empowered witnesses who testify to who Jesus is, both in our words and through the witness of our lives, through our actions. John models this for us by consistently living out a godly life and consistently calling his hearers to believe in Jesus the Messiah. Second, John demonstrates what it truly means to bear witness to Jesus by remaining faithful in adversity. And if we look at the gospel records, John encountered quite a bit of adversity all the way to the last dying a martyr. The second portion of our gospel reading this morning picks up with this encounter, this interrogation, if you will, where the Jews have sent priests and Levites to, to check John out, to see what he's about. And as we know, as we talk about so often, things were a mess in John the Baptist's day. Israel was under Roman oppression and rule. Herod the king was not a legitimate king for Israel. He was only half Jewish. He was propped up by the Roman system. To make a long story short, his family had come to power and held on to power through manipulation, collaboration with the enemies of God's people, and through flat-out treachery. And while there were faithful priests in the outlying rural areas, the priesthood and the high priesthood in Jerusalem, for the most part, had become corrupt with only a few exceptions. They colluded with Rome. They were looking out for carnal self-interest, self-preservation, something we see repeatedly in the Gospels from Christ's birth all the way through his death and resurrection. They weren't carrying out their priestly ministry for God's glory or the best interest of God's people. And these religious leaders, they didn't know what to do with John because he should have been one of them. His father, Scripture tells us, was a priest. And I might add, his father was a godly priest. But they didn't know what to do with him because John didn't play their games. He was unwilling to conform to a corrupt system that was contrary to the truth of God's word. And John had gone so far as to call this priestly aristocracy, aristocracy in Jerusalem a brood of vipers. That will win you friends. And they asked John, who are you? And John says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John had come down from the desert and he had come down out of a physical wilderness. But more significantly, he was testifying to the truth of living in a spiritual wilderness because of the corruption and the ungodliness of the religious leaders in that day. And he was a voice crying in and speaking out against that wilderness, speaking truthfully and prophetically God's truth to the people. It's not unique to John's time. Yes, John's ministry was unique. Yes, that this was the time of the coming of the Messiah into the world makes that period incredibly unique. But these issues of being a voice crying in the wilderness are not unique to John's time. 
They can apply in many ways to our time, not just in this country, but around the world as well. And it reminds us, John's example reminds you and me that we cannot simply conform to human religious norms. We can't take necessarily the popular route or the route of even the majority of people who profess some kind of faith to keep pace with the culture. God calls us above all else to fidelity to Christ. Did you hear that? God calls you and me to fidelity to Christ, even in adversity. Fidelity to the whole counsel of God's word. Fidelity to God's truth that means we don't take our cues even if much of the church does from the culture around us or the cultural spectrum or what political leaders might say across that spectrum. We are engaged in fidelity to the one true Lord. We are spiritual followers of Christ and our spiritual lives come first and then the secular fits into the spiritual as we obey Christ. We can never get that converse stood on its head. And God calls us in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the love and mercy of Christ to be prophetic voices to our culture, speaking the truth of God in love Seeds them with grace, but without compromise. And God calls us to be a prophetic voice, not only through our lives, but through our actions, where we reflect the character and the love and the mercy and the truth of Christ. In John 15, Jesus reminds his disciples that the world would hate them because it hates him. God calls and empowers us to remain faithful even in adversity just like he did John the Baptist. And then third, John demonstrates what it truly means to bear witness to Jesus by living a life of radical discipleship. Look at verses 26 and 27 of John chapter 1 with me. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not even know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now you might ask, what in the world does this verse have to do with radical discipleship? Well, the common idea of discipleship in our culture is that a disciple is a follower of someone. That is the idea of a disciple, the definition of a disciple in its most basic sense. A disciple tries to emulate and live out the teaching of the one he or she follows. And that could be in a spiritual sense. It could also be academically and professionally, a whole lot of different realms. But hear what I'm saying. In that definition, a disciple tries to follow or live out. It speaks of our efforts or our achievements. And this is the world's approach to discipleship anchored in human endeavor. But brothers and sisters, this is not how we become disciples of Jesus. Because to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is a far more radical thing. And John the Baptist shows us this. 
through his words and through the example of his life. Christian discipleship, being a disciple of Christ, doesn't mean simply emulating or trying to follow someone through our own efforts. Christian discipleship means dying to self. That we might become, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, that we might become slaves to righteousness. It means that we ever increasingly come under the rule and the headship of Jesus as the Spirit of God does his good work in us. But we can't ever do this through our own thoughts or through our own efforts. It only happens, it only happens through God's grace and the transforming work of God, the Holy Spirit, in our lives. So that our will is no longer our own. And as I talked about even last Sunday, we, we enter into this Christian life, but it's a process then of being more fully converted to God day by day, more fully turning toward God and the things of his kingdom and turning away from the things of this world. Where we are submitted to Jesus who has purchased us with his very own life. John the Baptist, when we talk about radical discipleship, John the Baptist understood this. In John chapter 3, verse 30, we read John's words, he must become greater, I must become less. John wants so far as to say that he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. We miss the force again of what this means here in the 21st century, 2,000 years removed from the immediate context. But John's hearers at that time understood what he was saying because there was a rabbinic teaching of that day that said, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. The loosing of a master's sandal thong was a demeaning task reserved only for slaves. And here we find John saying to these folks, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. To be a disciple of Jesus is a life of radical surrender to the will of God. To be a disciple of Jesus is death to self. I love the example of early Moravian church missionaries. And, you know, as I went back and was preparing this sermon, I got to tell you, I'm not sure I may have shared this illustration or this story once here before, you know, kind of you, before being here and I preach in a number of different contexts, things kind of blur back together. But this story is worth repeating, even if that is the case. Um, the early Moravian church was, believers were very zealous for the Lord. They profoundly impacted John Wesley and were instrumental in his full conversion to Christ. Um, our brother Martin Everett, by the way, is buried in a Moravian cemetery up in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, where I was able to officiate at his graveside service just a few weeks ago. And um, to give you a, an idea of how long that cemetery was there, Martin is buried in the new section of the cemetery. It's called the 1910 section. Um, the original section is the 1760 section. But there were two Moravian missionaries living in Copenhagen, John, Le John Leonard Dober and David Nitschman. In the seven 
1832, they were the first Moravian missionaries to the West Indies. Now, some stories will tell you they sold themselves into slavery. If you do your research, that's not the case. But they were the first Moravian missionaries to the West Indies. If you know anything about the West Indies in the early 18th century, um, it was a, an epicenter for the African slave trade because of the, the um, sugar plantations and all of those things. And these missionaries, Dobler and, Dober and Nishman, were incredibly burdened for the slaves in the West Indies. And so they went there to live among the slaves as missionaries to share the gospel. And there was much weeping the day they left from the port in Copenhagen as they sailed out because people knew they would never see them alive again. They weren't coming back. And the reality is they would probably live very short lives as did the slaves there with all of the disease. But as the ship sailed out of port, these are the last words that the Moravian brothers and sisters there in Copenhagen heard these two men cry out to them as the ship drew out of sight. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Death to self, lies of radical discipleship for the cause of Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful, profound godly example these two missionaries, even now, centuries later, give to us. And it raises the question for us as we look at this passage and as we conclude, do our words and the example of our lives call people to believe in Jesus? Do our lives point to the one who calls us to die to self that we might have eternal life in him? Do we point others through our words and our actions to this one, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we bear witness by remaining faithful even in adversity? I just saw this week that a group of Nigerian brothers and sisters were on a bus and were attacked one of the Anglican churches there. And I know this has been happening with, with Catholics as well in Nigeria on a regular basis, because I see the reports every week, something happens. But in Nigeria, um, the bus was held up by bandits and people were kidnapped. People were injured. People were then held for ransom on a church bus. Do we bear witness like our brothers and sisters around the world and remain faithful even in the midst of adversity? And do we bear witness by living lives of radical discipleship where people see us and what they see is Christ in us? that people see us and know that we are set apart for Christ and for his glory because he is, has and is radically transforming us. And our priorities are those of his kingdom that the world may know. And that through our lives, just like these Moravian missionaries, so that the lamb who was slain in you and me, so that the lamb who was slain, the one who we celebrate and honor every Sunday in the Holy Eucharist, the lamb who was slain 
that he may receive the reward of his suffering for us. This, brothers and sisters, is what God calls us to. Let us pray. Father, the the example of John the Baptist is a wonderful and profound word, but it is a hard word for us as well. Because it challenges us. It causes us by your spirit to engage in introspection and self-reflection. And in this, Father, you call us to evaluate our lives, not based on each other, our neighbor, the world around us, but based on Christ our Lord, the perfect example, the one who was slain for us. So, Father, pour your grace into our lives that, Lord, truly we may live lives of radical discipleship, that our lives, both individually and collectively as a church family, would bear witness to the world around us to who Jesus is and just what he can do for those who don't yet know him and his grace. And Lord, pour your grace into our lives that we would not be tethered to this world or the ways of this world or the thinking of this world, but that our lives would be tethered to you even in adversity. And Lord, we pray, may the lamb who was slain receive in us the reward of his suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.